You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you are listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the West Side Chicago representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Brother, I just want to commend you right now because I know it is coming down in Chicago. I know your car got stuck on the way to record this. Thank you so much for even making it to this recording, because without you, you know, otherwise we would not be recording right now. I don't know if we should be recording right now, but you you made it happen, bro. I appreciate you. Man, it was uh, it was really something. It was more snow than I anticipated. So uh, but I'm glad I made it. I got a good workout, too. I bet, man. Well, we are glad you made it, man. I hope all that snow clears up pretty soon. I know you're not a cold weather person and Chicago is really, really trying your patience right now. But again, brother, we appreciate you making it with us. Let me say one thing before we really get into this last, uh, uh, Chris. Last week, I was remiss. I was supposed to give a shout out to the Ann Campaign's Whole Life Project, and I totally whiffed on that. And so I want to ask for forgiveness. I want to give a shout out to the ladies of the Ann Campaign who are doing this Whole Life Project. Let me tell y'all listeners, these sisters are changing the narrative when it comes to abortion. You got to You got to check this out. They have put stories on our Instagram and all this other stuff. You got to go to our whole life page on the and campaign website and campaign dot org and campaign dot org. And you got to check out how these sisters are talking about abortion in a faithful way. It's all compassion and conviction. These ladies are doing a wonderful job and just wanted to shout them out. So make sure you go check those ladies out, check those stories out and learn how you can deal with uh, uh, abortion, not necessarily as a progressive or conservative, but more more so as a Christian. Also, as always, man, want to shout out the uh, church politics. Patreon, man, give a little or give a, a lot. But please try to be part of this movement by supporting us. We want to give you as much content as we can but we need your help to provide this content man we got brothers getting stuck in the snow to make it here to give you that knowledge to give you a faithful witness so please help us out when you can now chris i know that we usually spend a little more time on pleasantries or we would like to but we got a really heavy episode uh this time around and so i'm gonna cut the pleasantries short a little bit uh but i do want to do this i do want to give a warning i want to give a trigger warning to those who can't stomach hearing really hearing anything about America or American history that isn't romanticized. A lot of people just want to hear a romanticized version of American history. And if that's you, I want to give you a trigger warning and I want to advise you that you may want to skip this episode. Now, you need to hear this episode, but you may need to skip it if you don't want to hear the real about some of the stuff that went down in American history. If you're one of those people who judges America by its highest ideals, but judges everybody else based on their reality then you might not want to hear this, but you need to hear this. And I want to warn Chris, too, brother, as you already know, we might actually lose some listeners on, listeners on this. Our, 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 our audience has been growing. But just like when Jesus gave that hard teaching in John 6, not everyone is going to stay around after hearing the stuff that is difficult to process. But look, it's black history. 
Uh, it's Black History Month. So we got to let them know. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And I want to start, Chris, with a true story. So, Chris, I was probably in my second year of law school, what we call the 2L year. Uh, I was in a constitutional law class and we were discussing a case that was dealing with the Ku Klux Klan. And in responding to one uh, in responding to one of the professor's questions, one of my white classmates randomly equated the KKK to the Black Panther Party. She casually made that flawed comparison. And what surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, but the professor didn't even correct it. And I'm going to be honest with you, Chris, I was hot. I, I wanted to storm out of that classroom at that very moment or jump on the table and start yelling like Samuel L. Jackson. Because here we were at a top tier law school and neither my peers nor my professor apparently understood the difference between the Black Panther Party and the Ku Klux Klan. And since I've had that experience, I've heard a lot or I've heard too many Christians make that same mistake, put these two organizations in the same category. So let me and Chris do this for you. Let us give you a little bit of history on this subject. Let us give you a history lesson in this Black History Month. The Black Panther Party was founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale in Oakland, California in 1966. This was maybe three years after Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, I Have a Dream speech, that famous speech that I'm sure all of you have heard of. And in Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. speech, he says this. He says that we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. That's right. In one of the greatest speeches in American history, American police brutality was loudly acknowledged and condemned. Now, I don't have to tell you all this. By now, you've all seen the videos uh, from back then of black people being attacked by police dogs, being sprayed by fire hoses, being beaten by batons, being attacked by those who were wielding the authority of the state, being attacked by those who were supposed to be protecting and serving us. Now, I'm saying this to establish that the Black Panther Party was reacting to realities that were acknowledged by Dr. Martin Luther King himself. And this is important because while some folks might not consider them to be a credible source, nowadays, everybody supposedly appreciates Dr. King. They didn't then, but they do now, might be convenient, whatever. But let's establish that this was a real serious problem at that time, right? One of the most famous speeches mentions this. Accordingly, the organization was founded as the Black Panther Party for self-defense. For self-defense. Like any dignified group of people, these folks were tired of watching their people get their brains beat out without recourse. They ran breakfast programs for kids in the hood so that they could eat before school. They wanted to create hospitals in the ghetto. And they armed themselves and made it known that they were willing to protect their community. 
I have a hard time believing, Chris, that most majority Christians wouldn't have done the same thing in that same situation. The Black Panther Party was nothing, nothing like the KKK. They weren't a terrorist terrorist organization. They were responding to terrorism. They were responding to injustice, partiality in the courts, substandard housing, rat infested tenements, government sanctioned murder and so on. Now, for those of you who have been following this podcast for a while, you know that we tell the whole truth. You know that we don't need to romanticize any group to make us or anybody else look better. So we're going to tell the whole truth. The Black Panther Party was a socialist and black nationalist organization. They did flirt with Marxist theology, which I believe was a mistake. I also believe it was a mistake for part of the black power movement to break away from the church. I believe that they lost something very important. I think they lost a little bit of moral imagination when some of them broke away from the church. But let me tell you this. In believing that Marxism is very wrong. I still don't like me, like some Christians do, I still don't equate it to Satanism. Because let's be clear. America's behavior at that time and up until that time was bad enough to make the theory of Marxism seem like a refuge. How America treated marginalized groups made Marxism seem desirable to some. It drove people towards that faulty and dangerous conclusion. Let's be serious. Marxism is extremely flawed. I'll say that again, been saying it for a long time. But let's not act like the brutal alternative presented by America at that time was clearly better. To most people, it wasn't. And I know that I know many people in the church don't want to have that conversation. But the fact of the matter is that many black people in America prior to the 1960s had reason to believe that that the American culture and its market system was rotten to the core and that it would never equitably bear fruit for them. The Black Panther Party's embrace of Marxism wasn't a product of stupidity, stupidity of the, or them just being evil uh, or just evil on behalf of the black community. It was a product of the brutality, inequality and evil in the in American culture and again in its market system at that time. You see, we don't have to sit here and agree with every single thing, every single tactic, every single philosophy of the Black Panther Party. But what I will do is put it into context. I will remind you that not every manifestation of capitalism and American democracy has been all rainbows and butterflies. It hasn't. Some of it has been downright demonic. Now, before you at me, before you send me nasty messages on uh, 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 Twitter and emails and before you try to go behind the end campaigns back and deplatform us, because that happens. Do me a favor. Go read up on the White Citizens Council. And what they did to black people economically. How that organization was pure evil. And up until a few years ago, we still had elected officials whitewashing that group. 
Do me a favor and, and go read about the end of Reconstruction and Black Wall Street and how every time black people tried to accumulate economic, political or social capital, it was intentionally destroyed by white people, many of whom would call themselves Christians. Do me a favor and look, look up and read on J. Edgar Hoover. The director and the man who basically created the FBI, one of the most evil men in American history, ran one of our most important government agencies for almost 50 years. Read about how American presidents were so afraid of this man that they let him do whatever he wanted, including terrorizing and murdering black leaders. Go read up on COINTELPRO. The government counterintelligence initiative that exterminated black and indigenous leaders and annihilated their organizations using American tax dollars. Read about what they did to the American Indian movement. Go look up how the government let drugs flood the black community, how they poisoned the community for generations before you indict the black culture and before you indict the black family ever again, go look up that history. And then we can have a conversation about it. And let's be clear. These are not conspiracy theories. These are facts that are verifiable by government documentation. Receipts. The black Panther party were the black, the black Panthers were an armed reaction to murderous white supremacy and well document and the well documented police brutality that came with it. It was an imperfect self defensive response to oppression that did a lot of good in society. The KKK, on the other hand, was a response to the suggestion, not even the reality, the suggestion that the black that black people should be treated like humans with dignity, franchise and access to American prosperity. Do you see the difference now? White power was about the defense of white supremacy. Black power was about the defense of black dignity. Chris, I'm gonna go ahead and hand it over to you. I, I know you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie, the black uh, Judas and the black Messiah, but I know that we both have a personal connection to what was going on in that area at that time. We both have a parent or parents who grew up on the west side of Chicago during that time of the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton and all the stuff that the movie depicts. And I'll just stop by saying this. My father tried to watch the movie. He told me he tried to watch it, but he couldn't get through it. He, he said he, he didn't really want to relive the memories uh, that came back as he watched that movie. So he let it go. And it was just a tough time, man. But I'm going to go ahead and pass it to you, man. Yeah, no, I mean, Justin, you said uh, much of what needs to be said on the matter. Um, you know, as, as you said, this is uh, it's, it's kind of personal for me. Um, you know, as, as you said, uh, my, my dad grew up on the West side. My mom grew up on the West side, right in those times. Uh, my dad was tangentially, uh, you know, involved with the black Panthers. My, my spiritual father was uh, very much involved, uh, with the, uh, with, with the Panthers. Um, and I grew up on the West side. Um, you know, so the devastation of that era, uh, and the toll that it took on that community, uh, you know, the community is still, you know, trying to recover from 
uh, those realities today. Uh, and that is the world uh, in, in which I grew up. Um, you know, if, if you even think about where headquarters was, anybody who got, gets on a Zoom call with me, a lot of times I have my, my background. Uh, there's a picture of, of uh, Madison and Pulaski, which is uh, only blocks away from where the headquarters uh, was. And so, you know, all of what you said, Justin, is, is, uh, is so true. Uh, very much of what you said, though, uh, the heartbreaking part is that it, um, it, it rings so prophetic even today. You know, we still kind of live in a society where we haven't fully reckoned with the, uh, the oppressive reality of, of violence at the hand of the state. Uh, and I, I talk about this as somebody not who only has a, a respect for what has happened in history, but as somebody who has spent my days uh, and, and probably more nights uh, in the, the streets of the city of Chicago trying to um, work on issues of community violence, because that's a real thing. Uh, but there's something different uh, emotionally, psychologically, communally when you have to think about the threat of violence at the hand of the state, when you, when you have to have pause, uh, it, it, when you're trying to do peace uh, making work in the community, and there's, there's this thought in the back of your mind always, can we partner with uh, law enforcement? Because we don't know that law enforcement shares our values uh, when it comes to the dignity and uh, value of a black life, uh, and 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 that that messes with the mind. And so when you think about uh, the ways that we respond to this, I certainly think that there were many things um, problematic about the the, uh, the the Black Panther kind of response to uh, the oppression. I, I I just do. I mean, I, I was I didn't grow up in that era, so I don't move to uh, condemn. Uh, you know harshly what folks uh, did in response to this oppression. But I, I would like to think that I'm, you know, a, a peaceful protest kind of guy. Um, don't necessarily believe uh, that in, in, in armed resistance. Um, and so there, there's not to mention the, the Marxism and, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot to critique. Uh, but the that comparison uh, that, that you heard in law school and that we hear uh, often in the in the public discourse, is, is very poor because it ignores where that strategy came from, uh, and it's very important to reckon with where that strategy came from because you know the way that it was dealt with didn't deal with the issues. Uh, the issue itself actually still lingers in our communities, um, and 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 still has very uh, very difficult impacts, uh, even on those of us who, are, like I said, are trying to do positive things uh, in the community today. Th that issue of of violence at the hand of the state uh, against black and brown people, it was very real for them, uh, and it's it's still real for us. Uh, and so I, I hope that this is a moment where we can. Uh, really begin to reckon with that. I mean, I, I know the end campaign, we, we put out, uh, you know, uh, a couple of statements last year uh, and, and are doing, we're doing work organizing around this, this issue. Um, 
you know, and, and I hope that folks will not only, uh, you know, look at the stuff that's happening on whole life, that narrative been, uh, you know, totally reframed. We also need to get back to this issue of police violence because it's real uh, and we got to deal with that. That's real. I mean, me and Chris, and again, for f- folks who have been listening to this, you got to put it in the context of, of what we said over the years and who the AND campaign is. We are closer to MLK than we are probably to Huey Newton. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just that's just perspective that we come from. But what we're not going to do is put the Black Panther Party in the same category as the KKK. That's just historically inaccurate. That helps nobody because that that's not even comparable. OK, we have to put these things in the context. And so, like we said, there are things that we disagree with, but we also know that they were serving the community. They were doing a lot of other things, too. So read up on it. Don't even take our word for it. Read up on it. Watch the movie if you want to, but even more so, read books, several books on it. Watch some of these great documentaries, All Power to the People, things like that, and read up on the other things about American history. I used to assume, Chris, that a lot of folks knew American history, but they really don't. A lot of folks only know a very much sanitized version of American history. And unless you can tell me about the White Citizen Council, Black Wall Street, what ended Reconstruction, and all the things that I named, you don't really understand American history. And that's okay. But you gotta take the, you know, you gotta take the time to learn it. And one of the things that upsets me is that when we talk about American history, there's too many Christians that want to hastily skip over all the bad stuff. Like it's just a blip in the uh the store the american story right yeah yeah there was slavery but yeah 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 there was a lost cause but yeah there was jim crow but like you can just skip over that and go to other stuff even when it was hundreds of years right you don't want to talk about excluding black people from significant parts of of uh, fdr's new deal you don't want to talk about excluding black people from the gi bill who had gone and fought uh, overseas and, and gotten killed and injured and still didn't come back to get the benefits that they uh, that they should have got. We don't want to talk about redlining. We don't want to talk about mass incarceration. We don't want to talk about the current health care and economic disparities. We want to act like those are just small departures from the true American story. It's a significant part of the American story. And this is coming from somebody who is in that Frederick Douglass school of thinking to say, that, yeah, I think there is something exceptional about our Constitution. I think it gives us the mechanism to change a lot of the things that we have changed and need to change. I think that our innovations show that we are we do have some things that are exceptional about what America does. That does not allow us to run away from the facts. You still have people who will literally and I was in one of these conversations not too long ago, literally get upset. When you list historical facts, receipts. And if that's not unbiblical pride, I just don't know what is, man. We should we should all be able to listen to facts about American history and sit there and process them and investigate our culture, examine our culture and examine ourselves. Chris, I'll let you end it, man. Yeah, we, we have to go on to uh, to other points. But, you know, I, I would just say that when you bring up these historical facts, uh History is not a bludgeon. Like when I bring up these facts, at least, is not to make somebody feel bad or to to put you in the category of of an evil person. But we have to examine the history uh, if we're going to make wise decisions uh, that help us come together and move forward in a productive way. We have to examine the history. Uh, And so I just encourage people to do that. Like this is not to, uh, you know, to make anybody feel some kind of way. This is to get us 
in in firmly set in reality uh, so that we can move forward. Man, um, very strong, brother. We're going to go to a break and then we'll be right back. All right, Ann Kent, we are back. And so I hope you enjoyed that uh, black history lesson. Now we're going to get into some some other things. Uh, Ezra Klein, you may have heard of him. Ezra Klein is one of the premier American journalists. Uh, and I'll say this, Chris, he, he made me feel seen uh, last week with an article that he wrote. Now, I want to be clear. I don't always agree with his work. He is much more progressive than I am. But I do recognize his talent and I do think that he's a diligent journalist. He's a he's a smart guy. Uh, And he wrote an article last week entitled California is making liberals squirm. If progressives can't if progressivism can't work there, why should the country believe that it can work anywhere? Uh, The article starts off by talking about how San Francisco's Board of Education voted to rename 44 schools including one named after Paul Revere. Uh, This was supposed to demonstrate, I guess, Chris, uh, uh, how woke they were and how anti-racist they were. But it was ironic because at the same time that they were taking the names off of all these schools, San Francisco public schools were closed, which is really severely harming a lot of children in low-income areas or in low-income households. The private schools were open, And these folks were worried about renaming schools, but they weren't doing it what it took to open up the public schools. Uh, Ezra goes on to say that in much of San Francisco, you can't walk 20 feet without seeing a sign declaring that black lives matter. But those signs are in yards zoned for single family homes only. Those signs are in communities that organize against the housing, against the new housing that would bring their stated values closer to reality. So, in other words, you have a community that's doing all the symbolic and performative stuff to show how woke they are. But they aren't really pursuing more substantive policy measures because some of those policy measures would conflict with their self-interest or disturb their lifestyle enclaves. This is the aesthetics of justice rather than the substance of justice. And I'd like to, and and I talked about this a little bit on a past episode where I was talking about woke capitalism, where people can say the right things and uh, uh, have the right uh, symbolism, but not really be doing the work. Now I've said this for a long time, and this is part of why I feel seen Chris Places like California, we're not condemning everybody from California or every, you know, y'all already know that, hopefully. But progressives in general have really done a terrible job when it comes to housing. And it hasn't just been bad policy. It's 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 almost risen to just injustice by itself. Now, California is known as a bastion of inclusion, a bastion of progressivism. But when you look closely and this is coming from Ezra Klein, Ezra Klein is very progressive. He's saying when you look closely you see that California isn't all that it's, it's, it's made out to be. That California has the highest rate of poverty in the nation when you factor in housing costs. And it has close to the highest income equality, too. California has the highest unemployment. California has half of the total homelessness in the country. It's the second worst when it comes to educational 
outcomes for disadvantaged students and the crime rate is out of control. These are all things that we can't blame on Trump. There are many things we can. These are this isn't one of them. These aren't things that we can blame on Republicans. These aren't things that anyone that you can blame on anyone with a southern accent. And we see so much hubris coming from folks from these places. But the state really isn't doing well for the people. And people are leaving. But what about the people who can't leave? Ezra ends by saying this, or at least he says this in part of it. He says there is a danger, not just in California, but everywhere that politics becomes an aesthetic rather than a program. And I think that's poignant. I know so many people and you may, too, Chris, I know so many people who will get mad and argue back and forth on Twitter and on text about everything in politics, repeat their little talking points that they got from whatever show that they watch, but really have done nothing, haven't inconvenienced themselves at all. So, Chris, I want you to just kind of weigh in on this article and and how we can keep from being aesthetic in our policy, but really get to the substance, really get to the substance of our policy. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's very important uh, that we do. Probably the only thing uh, that I take objection with in, in this particular article from Ezra Klein is the is the headline. Uh, because the the headline is California is making liberals squirm. And I only wish that anybody was actually squirming. Um, I I think that for the most part, uh, people are very confident in this. I too felt seen Um, because you could really uh, uh, do a search and replace uh, California for Chicago and uh, and write the same article. I mean, the the housing inequity uh, is insane. Um, the, uh, the, the, the income inequality is ridiculous. The, but, but this is supposed to be like this great, uh, you know, progressive democratic city. And if, if we believe so much in, you know, black lives matter and, you know, we're the party of the poor and the party of people who, you know, people of color, then you have to ask yourself the question after, you know, decades and decades of one party dominance. Why is it still so hard to be black in Chicago? Why is it still so hard to be poor uh, in Chicago if this is what we actually believe? Well, the answer is that while we say these things, um, a lot of times we're not willing to make the the personal sacrifices that it takes uh, to, to make these things reality. Everybody wants to be for poor people in Chicago, but but folks in, you know, Lord, don't let me get to calling out neighborhoods, but, you know, <laughs> we, nobody's cl- clamoring for, for affordable housing in Logan Square, right? Like, but, but we show up, you know, with Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protests. Well, give Black Lives a place to live in, in an affordable uh, and quality uh, housing situation right there in your neighborhood. Well, we don't want that in our neighborhood. We just want the protests. And so this becomes very dangerous in our politics. Uh, I was talking to a parishioner uh, in the last week. He's, he's a, a cop. And he was actually patrolling a BLM protest when a, a white guy, this is on the north side, uh, comes up to him. The First off, the protest is happening uh, in this very affluent community that is built 
where the Cabrini Green project used to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So so that symbolism <laughs> is already crazy. Right. This is where the protest is happening. Uh, the 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 protesters are, you know, probably, you know, by his uh, telling of it, majority uh, white. And this is not to say that white folks can't protest the Black Lives Matter. I pray that you do. But, you know, here's a, an African-American cop and, and this guy starts uh, berating him you're, and, and, and eventually says, you're a pig who fell in the mud. Now, you are being like absolutely racist at a at a, a BLM protest. And that is just one anecdote, but it speaks to what Ezra Klein is talking about, this idea that that, that our politics becomes an aesthetic, it becomes a show, uh, and, and it, it, it messes with everything. I mean, and, and we, we got to move past uh, this. It reminds me, Justin, of the, uh, the parable that Jesus tells in the scripture of the two sons. The father tells them both to do a job. One says to the father, I'm not going to do the job. And he goes and does it. Uh, another, the other son t- tells the dad, you know, I will do the job. He goes and, and, and does nothing. Uh, and we have come into this day and it, it is becoming critical where the most important thing in our politics is to say what people want to hear, not to actually do something that actually impacts people's lives. Uh, and we cannot exist uh, with that kind of policy, uh, politics, like we have to have a politics that actually uh, gains uh, real uh, concrete uh, victories and changes in the lives of people. Otherwise, what is it worth? Uh, and I'll just say this last thing. Uh, it is why it bothers me that, you know, that we have uh, a situation right now in the federal government. Right. Because, you can, again, you can search and replace right now uh, where, you know, we're talking about putting Harriet Tubman on the twenty dollar bill. And, you know, we setting up commissions to study uh, equity in the government and all this stuff. But we've already negotiated down two thousand dollar checks to fourteen hundred dollar checks, and we still can't figure out how to get them out. They're still not through uh, the process. We still don't know if they're going to be further means tested. And at the end of the day, we're still at risk of having a great show of you know impeaching uh, former President Donald Trump and uh, you know great talking points of. Uh, you know, we got Harriet Tubman coming to the $20 bill. We have all this diversity in the cabinet, so forth and so on. And then nothing in the actual lives of people. That's so frustrating to me. Uh, it, it is. And I think it frustrates me because I live in a city like that, that's completely dominated by, you know, folks who are perfectly willing to lecture everybody on progressive values and justice and equity. But poor people are still poor. Folks still can't find a place to work. Folks still can't find a place to live. And the 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 dissonance, and I, I won't even call it dissonance. I mean, it's it's straight up dishonesty, uh, is 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 appalling and and deeply frustrating to me. Yeah, man, it's, it's got to be about the work. It it really does. It has to be about the work. You, you got to get some stuff done, man. And it's unfortunate. And I want to say this again. This isn't to, to talk bad about Californians. I got a lot of Californians I love. We got chapters that are coming up in California. We love everybody in California except the Lakers. So it's really not about that. But we do want you to get the work done and not just be all talk. 
All right, we got one more segment coming up. And if anybody asks for all those folks who cry about why we talk about both sides, this is a perfect example why. But we got one more segment and we will be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Well, if we lost some listeners from that uh, first segment, we might lose the other side of listeners <laughs> from the, from this last segment, but that's all right. Um, you all know that in American politics today, nothing upsets partisans and ideological tribes more than suggesting that they should extend grace to their political opponents. Suggesting that their political opponents are anything other than demons makes you either stupid or adjacent to whatever they don't like at the moment. Mm-hmm. But we're going to make that suggestion to some extent. At least I am. I don't know exactly what Chris is going to say. Right. Um, In the Washington Post, there was an article entitled a major a majority of the people arrested for the Capitol riot had a history of financial trouble. This article was by Todd uh, Frankel, and he uses research about the insurrectionists to try and understand their motivations, not just assume what their motivations are, but to understand it. Uh, now, I thought I know that many of you probably think that this is a fool's errand uh, because many people believe that the only explanation for why they did what they did was racism, period. And I get that that's a clean and easy narrative. It fits the storyline that we want to hear. And you'll get canceled if you say anything otherwise. But I think we should at least consider that there could have been other motivations there. And let me uh, let me tell you what the Washington Post report says. It says that nearly 60 percent of the people facing charges related to the Capitol riot showed signs of prior money troubles, including bankruptcies, notices of eviction or foreclosures, uh, bad debts or unpaid taxes over uh, over the past two decades. According this is, again, according to the Washington Post analysis of public records of one hundred and twenty five defendants. Uh, political scientist, a political science professor, excuse me, Cynthia Miller Idris said that what she thinks that we're seeing or, or what they're finding is that it's more than just economic insecurity. It's a deep seated feeling of precarity or uncertainty about their personal situations. And she was in and, and the, the article suggested that Trump was playing on the, that personal pain. So to be clear, I, w- I want to be clear where I'm coming from. This does not justify anything. This is not comparable to what I think a lot of black people in America have been through or anything like that. 
This does not say that racism didn't play any role absolutely in what happened. But here are some questions I think that as Christians we have to ask that may go against the assumptions of popular culture or against the assumptions of our tribe. As Christians, can we say that the capital insurrectionists were unjustified and still extend a level of grace to the people who participated in it? Can we say that they were wrong and that they need to be punished, but that maybe their motivation wasn't simply racism? Maybe that was part of it, but maybe that wasn't the whole thing. Now, I know that that does not, again, serve the narrative. But are we willing to defy the mob and at least consider that to be an option? Can we see that some of these people are dying at high rates of deaths of despair, like suicide, drug overdoses, um, that in some areas the life expectancy of some white males has gone down? Can we admit those facts? Can we factor those into our analysis? Can we be faithful and not care about those statistics? Can we be faithful and join the cultural narrative where we simply say, well, they didn't care about us while we were dying. So whatever. I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to feel anything about it. Is that a faithful Christian response? Now, I truly believe that a major part of the Christian life is being able to live with or live in tensions. Uh, Things that are, are difficult to reconcile. It's being able to harmonize sentiments and issues that seem to be in conflict. And I think the gospel allows us to do that. I think the gospel demands that we do that. And let me just kind of give you an instance of that. The tension here is between wrongdoing and grace. When we see wrongdoing, does that mean that there's no grace to be had? What about the tension of calling out foolish actions while still acknowledging human dignity? These are people, some of whom were smearing feces and crying out like madmen. Do we only have disdain, disdain for them? Or... Does our faith demand some compassion also? Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is uh, is very important, Justin. I, even before I knew that we were talking about this on the podcast, I actually talked about it on Sunday in my sermon, um, the same uh, article, because, you know, that idea of being able to... Um, to kind of, I, I love the way you said it, harmonize these tensions uh, in the gospel. Uh, not only is it so important to our faith, uh, it is very much the only way forward for a democratic way of life. Um, it's, it's very important that we understand uh, that a way of thinking that makes a whole class of people uh, into a dangerous enemy that is the beginning of a road uh, to a complete police state, right? Like, because that idea that the guy down the street is so dangerous, every person who uh, voted for Donald Trump uh, is, a, is a dangerous racist uh, who needs to be stopped, right? Like, if, if that is the, the philosophical reality that we choose, the only way to govern that uh, is through force. 
right? And so the the way to avoid uh, a society in which the primary uh, kind of way to order ourselves is force, the only alternative to that is grace, right? We have to be able to uh, to see nuance uh, and to get into some of these things. And, and right now we live in a world um, where really folks who are very far removed from any of us who live anything that looks like a normal life um, are driving the way we think about these issues, right? Like these are folks who are supremely credentialed, very elite, often very wealthy, uh, driving these narratives. Uh, and they're driving people apart who should be working together to uh, to win real concrete changes in the lives of the majority of the people. Um, it, it, and, and what happens is that nobody's actual values are being addressed. Like right now in this country, family, the traditional family is eroding and we're not doing enough uh, to make progress on LGBTQ rights. Uh, abortion rates are too high and too many people are suffering, like women are suffering indignities uh, associated with pregnancy and, and, and motherhood. Law enforcement everywhere is under attack. And like we were talking about at the top of the show, we haven't made enough progress on police reform. Nobody's values uh, are being moved forward. We're just stuck because we can't uh, have a conversation. And, and, and the narratives that prevent the conversation are usually being driven by folks who are not living in the everyday that the vast majority of us, uh, whether we're conservative, progressive, or somewhere in between, the vast majority of, of us are living a life that the folks who are driving this narrative, they don't live uh, the way we live. And, and I, I can only pray, Justin, uh, that in, in this moment uh, in history, uh, we can break free from that kind of oppressive narrative that keeps us from extending grace uh, and having these more nuanced conversations um, so that we can actually start making real progress for really for everyone. I couldn't agree more. Again, this isn't saying that people shouldn't be punished. It's not saying that they shouldn't serve time or that there shouldn't be a serious rebuke. We've done all those things. So so we're certainly not saying that. But if you look at what happened, if you look at those people and all you feel is disdain or if you feel hate. You got to check yourself as a Christian. There should be some compassion there. There should be something else there within you, because I don't know about you, Chris, but I was an enemy of, of God. You know, I mean, I, I've done things and hurt people in ways that I can't look at somebody else and say they're irredeemable. So that's what's being said. I hope y'all get some out of it. I hope y'all come back next week. I know this was a uh, there was some some tough messages in this particular uh, episode, but we do hope you come back. Chris, thank you for making it, man. I know you came through the snow in Chicago today to make this happen. I hope you get back safely, brother. Keep me posted. Uh, and as always, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and camp until next time we'll holla at you.